Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys, congratulations. You made it to the weekend. This is your Friday Roundup. And as usual, I have my co-host, Brad, here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, Jonathan, doing well. What's going on by you? Yeah, I actually have a pretty cool story to share. Uh, so I went back to my parents' house in Chesapeake, Virginia this week, and I took my wife to the library. So, you know, we've talked in the show about how a library is kind of like the fortress of solitude for many people in the FI community. And and I got this from Mr. 1500. I've started to want to see what the library looks like in different cities. And this was actually my childhood library, and I was excited to go back and check it out. And it's actually amazing. They've put a lot of time and energy into making this a place that you're just want to go to. So I, I took my wife there to kind of show her around. And I was remembering, I don't know if you remember this, but just the computer games in the 90s, they were kind of my portal to educational computer type games. One of the ones that I remembered was uh, Where in the World was Carmen San Diego. And I couldn't help myself. I actually went to the computer station and got logged in to see whether or not I could access that game. No. So that game has not weathered time well, which I guess is a little bit ironic, but it is no longer on the computer systems at the Chesapeake Public Library. So that's absolutely hilarious. I have not thought of that where in the world is Carmen Sinego in probably, you know, 20 years, but I think they actually had a TV show and I was just furiously like typing this into Google on PBS actually. And I went to a taping of it. My school, I don't know, somehow we were involved in this where a couple of kids got to actually be the contestants on that show. Uh, so yeah, I actually went to a taping of that TV show, which is a little known fact that it even existed, but it was, it was kind of cool. I remember that. So it was like a live action show, but then didn't have like an animated component to it. Oh, you're, uh, you're stretching my memory, which is pretty terrible, but yeah, certainly live aspect looking at a picture of the cast and yeah, I haven't. Again, okay. I haven't thought of them in 20 years, but this is hilarious. Well, I do have something for you. For those of you that are looking to get your fix of the old 90s computers games, and they can be the educational ones like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, or really anything you can remember, you can go to a website called classicreload.com. Now, this is amazing. For those of you that have this nostalgia, this fondness for those older type games that you can't find anymore, like, I don't know, Oregon Trail or... King's Quest or where in time is Carmen Sandiego, basically anything that you can remember, you can go to classicreload.com and you can actually play them from a web app and they're all completely free. So a fantastic frugal win of the year for those of you that just maybe you don't really like playing the new games as much or maybe you do, but you still get a huge kick out of going back and checking out some of those old titles from your childhood. I spent about an hour just digging through that game and I did find Carmen Sandiego and we brought her to justice and then ended up having having a great weekend with my family as well. Nice. Yeah, that, that sounds like a cool, cool weekend. I like uh, I like the library hack. That's neat to just go visit other libraries. And yeah, actually, I had put a post on the Facebook group maybe about a week ago or so, just basically asking for people's favorite books. What have they been reading recently? And a 
bunch of people mentioned this fantasy novel called The Lies of Locke Lamora. And I actually picked it up and I am just flying through this thing. I've read I'm up to page like 525 right now at a 700 and change and already grabbed the books two and three in the series out. And yeah, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. So yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, highly recommend it. Oh, cool, man. I'll definitely add that to the reading list. All right, Brad, well, let's go ahead and dive into the Monday episode talking about the path to fi in a high cost of living area. What I loved about this episode is how many obstacles in particular Paige had to her ability to hit fi in a short period of time. Uh, In particular, we had this maybe average income or maybe even for the area that she's living in, maybe even a lower than average income. You have a late start to fi where you're discovering this concept and you have a, a pretty significant negative net worth approaching six figures in your 40s. And having all of this in this extremely high cost of living area like Los Angeles, it gave us an almost borderline extreme case study of what is possible when you apply your mind to something and you're willing to make unconventional choices to achieve your goal. And I think the story that we talked about on Monday was one of optimism and it should be one that's encouraging for multiple reasons. The first reason is that In many cases, if you're hearing this and you're having your own set of obstacles that's keeping you from wanting to take action on this stuff, think about what advantages you have over Paige and the fact that this was still possible for her. Maybe you live in a low cost of living area. That could be a possible advantage. Maybe you're finding this at a younger age. That would be an advantage for you. Maybe you're doing this in an environment where you have a higher income. That would be an advantage for you. Ultimately, when we say it's just a function of the math, that can be a very uplifting statement or a very demoralizing statement based on the math. But it's all about determining what your framework is and then determining how you're going to attack this game. Because ultimately, it comes down to your savings rate. If you're paycheck to paycheck, something's going to have to give. But you don't have to make the same choice that I would make in that exact same circumstance or the same choice that Brad would make. But you're going to have to change something if you're in a paycheck to paycheck lifestyle. Yeah, and I think my most succinct summary of what Jonathan just said is it's easy to make excuses, right? It's easy to make excuses why this can't work for you. But if it worked for Paige, then it can almost by definition work for you. Because like Jonathan said, she was starting out with all these what people would think of as negative tick marks against her. But in all likelihood, your fi journey is slightly easier in one of those ways. So if Paige did it, and she's living what seems to be this wonderful life of abundance for, for her, then you can definitely do this too. So it's easy to make excuses, but we just have to stop and just say like, what do we value? And how serious are we about pursuing whatever life it is that we want to live? And yeah, one thing that I definitely wanted to touch on, especially after speaking with my wife, Laura, about the episode is this wasn't purely an episode about high cost of living areas. You know, there were certainly a couple of things that we touched on and and I'll talk about that in, in a minute. But this was as much an episode about extreme frugality, as much an episode about reaching fi on a lower income. I mean, Paige touched so many boxes. I know when Jonathan titled the episode, it was high cost of living, but this really was was a little bit about everything, in my opinion. And I, I thought that was cool because everybody, even if you're not in a high cost of living area, you can get something out of Paige and Sam's story. So I thought that provided a lot of value. But as far as like the high cost of living aspects of it, I would say there were a couple of things that jumped out to me. So the first was obviously the cost of housing and apartments and basically how Paige lived for 20 years in one apartment that was basically a revolving door of roommates. But what it did was 
she had stability and she had significantly defrayed costs of housing because she was sharing an apartment with, in some cases, between two and a handful of people in some cases. So I think that's one of the easiest ways when you're in a high cost of living area to cut down on your costs and, and reach five faster is just because you're a quote unquote adult, you don't need to live alone in an apartment somewhere, right? Like that's not a requirement. You can step out of your comfort zone and and get roommates or get multiple roommates in some cases and take a place like Los Angeles and make it fairly inexpensive. I mean, they were spending, Sam said, $600 a month. And I think if my memory serves, that was maybe on the higher side of depending on the, the number of roommates. So they were paying less than that in some cases, which is remarkable. Yeah, I'm glad you brought back the attention of the title. Man, I struggled with what to call that that episode because like you said, it just hit every single box that you could want. Honestly, I probably should have called it Extreme Ownership. That was maybe even a better title for for that episode. Maybe that's what we could title this episode. But it's this idea that not every choice that you make in this life is going to be an optimized choice. I mean, certainly if Brad and I were looking at this objectively without any emotion involved and Paige were to ask us how she could increase our savings rate, we would tell her, well, you could just leave Los Angeles, right? I mean, you could find a lower cost of living area and based on the skill sets that you've already employed, I mean, your savings rate could jack up by another 25% very, very easily. But Paige looked at the math and said, from an emotional perspective, I need roots. I want to put roots down. So I'm not willing to change where I am geographically. This is where I'm going to be. But because I realize the value of the math and I'm going to take ownership for the fact that I'm not going to be as optimized as maybe I could be with respect to housing and rent versus buy and location, I'm going to need to now make adjustments in other areas of my life. And she's optimized so many other aspects that even with this short window, this 10-year window that she has to hit five by the year 2025, she can do it because while many of us are hemorrhaging money on things like cars and expensive cell phones and all the latest gadgets and going out to eat two or three times a week, she is able to maintain a lifestyle for her that only costs without the house somewhere around $12,000 a year. And she's able to hit a 50% savings rate while making right around or maybe even a little bit less than $50,000 and while living in an extremely expensive area of the country. And yeah, I just wanted to touch on some of the other high cost of living hacks that that Paige and Sam mentioned. The first and most obvious is, quote, the alley will provide, right? Like, Jonathan, how hilarious and perfect is that as as a, as a quote for Choose Up High? Yeah, I love it. It'll absolutely make it onto the website in various places. It'll probably end up making it into a, an app if that ever gets developed down the road. It's just a beautiful, beautiful line. And, you know, I think it relies on this idea of radical insourcing. And so it appeals to me at multiple levels. But obviously, if you and I like occasionally tiptoe into that, we will accept what the alley provide type mentality. They are like masters of it. You know, they look at their geographic domain as this puzzle. And how can I extract what we need from this in a way that doesn't deplete our budget? And clearly not everyone has an alley next to them. And, you know, whether that's kind of tongue in cheek or not is, is almost irrelevant. What you have in your community is a whole bunch of free stuff or very nearly free at garage sales. There's a website I know I've used called Free Cycle. Craigslist has free stuff. I mean, there's 
a ton of different ways to get just free items and not buy new stuff that is going to be virtually worthless. If you go to any garage sale, I mean, everything you buy from kids' toys to clothes to just little knickknacks around the house, I mean, they sell for a quarter or 50 cents or a dollar at a garage sale. I mean, these things are basically all the items that you bought that you wasted money on, they're just worth nothing. So therefore, don't buy new, even if, if you have to have this stuff. And they said they aren't minimalist. They have, as Sam said, like this has reached peak crap, right? The world. And they have a whole lot of stuff. They were able to help one of their friends fill out an entire apartment just with the stuff from their own apartment. So, you know, these aren't minimalist by any means, but they're not buying new items. And I think that's a really good strategy. You can find, and it could be a fun game. Just go to different garage sales and buy things for a dollar. Right. Like if you absolutely have to have new stuff, if you get that dopamine hit from from getting something new, well, buy it, quote unquote, new from a grass sale. That's fine. Or find different, like I said, free cycle on your in your local community and see what you can get. Like that could be kind of a cool game. Just seeing like, hey, what's new this week? What could I get that would add to my life? Like if you absolutely have to have that, I know personally I would rather have nothing in my house, but you know, that's because I'm a, a, a pseudo aspiring minimalist. But uh, another thing like Jonathan mentioned is this radical insourcing. Sam has become an expert at fixing things, right? And like he said something to the effect of, I've not collected just objects, but skills. Now he's really made himself a much more valuable person by watching YouTube, by reading instruction manuals on how to fix things and, and just having this genuine curiosity to learn and to see how he can be frugal and pick up these skills of fixing different items that are going to, the alley will provide him, you know, and like, that's just a cool outlook on life. And the fact that he was able to leverage those skills against maybe other people's money in terms of finding this house and scooping it up as a deal. And I got to think to myself that if you collect skills instead of stuff, if you focus on that and you're able to acquire over a 10 to 20 year period, you're able to accumulate hundreds, if not thousands of new skills. And I'm not talking about being a master craftsman, but just a jack of all trades. You can change a light bulb. You can make minor electrical repairs. Realizing the fact that you don't know everything and that you have this next window of maybe 20 to 70 years to be good at anything that you want to be good at. It's just a matter of where you want to place your time. Uh, you could start developing interpersonal skills, negotiation skills, storytelling skills. There's nothing better or more rewarding than being a good storyteller. And it's a skill that you can develop. Learning a new language, cooking, painting, gardening, woodworking, fitness. I mean, What's really cool when you view time as this playground and you get to spend your time learning any one of these different skills and doing whatever you find to be the most rewarding, that in and of itself becomes its own puzzle and it makes this life that we all have the opportunity to live potentially more enjoyable. And personally, Brad, like all those are things that appeal to me at every level. And when I talk about how I'm collecting skills, those are the things that I'm working on. I would love to be a better storyteller. I can't tell you how many times I get started on a story and then realize I've just crashed and burned. And so I bail on it and I said, and then I found $5 and then I just move on because I've given up on it. And but storytelling is this art form that you can develop and it will just pay you dividends for the rest of your life if you can capture it. Yeah, that's cool. I know personally, I have no ability to tell jokes or stories or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, that's something that would appeal to me. It's just something that I have this limiting belief that I'm terrible at them. And 
yeah. I mean, if that's something I could take a course on or something, I, I'd be open to that. So yeah, let me know, Jonathan. If you're not afraid to learn new stuff, and in fact, you embrace the opportunity, there, there's zero chance that looking back, you regret that process, right? I mean, it will add value to your life. And I can't tell you how, but I can say that in my mind, you'll be infinitely happier several years from now with the skills that you acquired over the purchase of the latest iPhone. You know, I think it's so funny you hear about all the hysteria with the latest iPhone being released. And I'm just wondering, when you look back at the iPhone that you purchased, you know, three or four years ago, the iPhone 4, what what value does the iPhone 4 or the iPhone 5 have right now? And you know that if you advance a couple years in the future, when the iPhone C or whatever, however they're going to move on with the nomenclature comes out, that you're going to feel the exact same way. We are at maximum crap, right? I mean, when I drove down Midlothian Turnpike the other day, I saw eight car lots. And I was thinking in my mind as I was doing that, what Sam was saying about how there are more cars in California than there are people. It can't be sustainable. And, and that's not a political statement. It's just a, it's just a math game. It's not worth anything. It's depreciating into the ground. And if you put all of your money, all of your assets into stuff that is turning to rust and dust, that is a poor choice. But if you're putting your time, energy, and money into developing yourself, I guess you're also turning to dust at some point. <laughs> but the process will be more rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, listen, nobody's going to ever complain about having more skills. So I, I think it's just a function of just trying to get a little bit better just in your life. And that might just be reading a book, learning about history, learning just about anything. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to fix a $600 Dyson vacuum. It could be, but it doesn't have to be, right? There, there are so many things you can learn. And basically, I think what Jonathan's just trying to say is don't be complacent. Just try to pick up these skills over years and decades that are just going to make you a more valuable and more interesting person. I think I think there's nothing bad about that. So and just real quick, the last thing I wanted to touch on about was similar to this, about how many free things there are in a city. And it's not just what the alley is going to cough up. But and Liz from Frugal Woods mentioned this on the episode way back when about Boston being a really inexpensive place to live if you had a five mentality. And Sam and Paige are saying that about L.A. And, and I, I think it would hold true for any big city is there are so many free ways to get entertainment concerts and art showings and, and what have museums that have free Fridays or whatever it may be. Right. If you just take that little reframe and just say, OK, what can I do this week that's going to be fun and interesting and expand my horizons and is going to be free or close to free? I guarantee you, you can find a couple dozen things. It's just thinking outside the box, just that little, little bit, just getting outside of your normal little life. And this is something that I fall down upon as well. Like we live in Richmond, Virginia, which albeit is, is nowhere near a Boston or an L.A., but there are plenty of things going on here on any given weekend or given week, festivals and art exhibits and whatnot, concerts at the local universities. And Laura and I and my girls, we do very few of them. And that's just something that I don't know if we just get stuck in our own little lives or whatnot, but but we need to be better at that. And and really everybody out there can do something similar. It's there are so many free things in a city and don't have that limiting belief that, oh, because I live in a city, it's expensive. It's only expensive if you want it to be. It depends on how you frame the situation. All right. One of my big takeaways was actually how Sam's parents started him investing and how he said repeatedly that this just helped him cut that friction and that he, his advice was basically that like parents should, I think he used the phrase, should use force 
to get their kids started with investing, that it just made this dramatic, dramatic difference in his life. And Jonathan, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, because I know this was the single biggest takeaway for the episode for me. Yeah, I love this. So my approach or my takeaway was a little bit different. So when I heard the word force, I didn't take it as more of this browbeating your child into the submission of being on the fire path, but rather I focused more on the part where you're just lowering the resistance to getting the process started. You're making it easier. So for instance, setting up a Vanguard account or setting up some sort of investment vehicle or changing your withholdings with your employer or making any of those changes, while they're not hard, it is difficult to get started sometimes. You know, sometimes you have to rely on other people like an HR department to help you. Sometimes it takes time where you have to go sit in front of the computer and create logins and passwords and all these things. I mean, realistically, it's not more than a 30 minute process, but there is some resistance to getting it actually started. And so this idea that you need to make it simple for your child so that it's basically already in place for them. In my mind, was a was a light bulb moment in and of itself. And, and I find this as well, not just with my like with my son, who I want the best for, but really just for my younger siblings who are kind of at this place, 23, 25 years old. And I realized that in some cases, they haven't gotten that investment account set up. And so I am actually finding myself forcing them to do this and like checking in with them on a weekly basis to make sure that they're taking action on this. Because when you don't do that, when you just let it go, five years can pass and you go back and you follow up with someone. You say, hey, did you ever do that? No, I just never got around to it. That is what you see. And that is just this passive grazing mentality, taking the path of least resistance, which is always to do nothing. And nothing will leave you exactly where you are now. And when we talk about these relatively truncated timelines to financial independence, 5, 10, 15 years, if five years have gone by and you haven't started anything, I mean, you've extended your your five working career by 25 to 30%. And that's just a tragedy in my opinion, especially if all it would have taken to get the ball rolling was for you to make that one 30-minute phone call. Yeah, you have to take action. And that's what we focus on here with every episode. And I know every single Friday, I put a post in our Facebook group that winds up being the most popular post of the week with hundreds upon hundreds of comments, just saying, what was the one action you took this week to make your life better, healthier, wealthier, et cetera? Like, what did you actually do this week, right? You had seven days, you had 168 hours to do one thing. Right. In, in a perfect world, you do multiple. But if you do one thing every single week and actually take action, right, just get off, get off that couch and do something your life to Jonathan's point. It's, it's not going to be the same two, five, ten years from now. It's just not if you just keep compounding these little changes, like Jonathan said, this friction, anything you can do to cut the friction just will make it dramatically easier to make change. And clearly, I'm not advocating like Jonathan was kind of saying about like browbeating your kids into investing or making it into something miserable about you must pursue financial independence. It's nothing like that. It's just the difference between some 23-year-old college graduate investing and not investing could have been, hey, their parents opened a Vanguard account for them at 12 and every single time they got holiday money or birthday money, it went in there and it just became a habit or just not, right? If the parents just didn't do that and the kids bought random shoes or clothes or whatever it may be and didn't invest, well, that's the difference between cutting that friction and not and just making it a habit. And these kids would then just be used to doing that. And the account's already open. That's the biggest thing, right? Like if you just made it that, oh, hey, I've got an extra $150 lying around. I'm going to put this into my Vanguard mutual fund, right? Because 
it's A, the account's open, B, it's a habit, and C, you know how to do it. It doesn't seem like this insurmountable task of, okay, I'm 23, I know I want to do this in a perfect world, but I don't even know how to open an account. What kind of an account do I open? What investment do I put it in? How do I actually link up my bank account? Like there are all these little micro steps that if like, if you let them overwhelm you, it's gonna seem overwhelming and you're gonna sit on your couch and do nothing. But if you just break it down into simple tasks, Or if in this case, your parents had broken it down for you and they helped you walk through this years and years ago, well, there's no friction anymore. As I talk through this, it's cutting down on that friction, but just breaking things down into little steps and just not making it overwhelming. None of those things are difficult. You can just call Vanguard's, in this hypothetical, you can call Vanguard's 800 number and they'll walk you through every single aspect of that. Or you could figure it out on your own, just on their website. But it's just a couple of simple little tasks. But if you let it overwhelm you, you're gonna do nothing and then, To Jonathan's point, you'll be nowhere different 10 years from now, but you have to take action. And practically speaking, what this looks like, Andrew shared with us on our Facebook page, and he said this was his fire win. The wife and I do a Monday night breakdown of the podcast. Tonight, the kids were listening in, and we had a nice talk about fully funding Ross, how the math works over time, and paying attention to our wants and needs. The four-year-old wanted to know about how good she was doing, and we said she had a seven-year head start on her big sister toward fire. The 11-year-old says, Dad, my investment jar is full. We need to go to the bank. She has two jars on her windowsill. One says invest. The other says save for fun. The 11 year old gives me a squeeze and says, dad, I love talking about money. (laughs) Second generation fire is spreading, my friends. That is the perfect family story. That's what forcing this looks like. It's this gentle approach where you're lowering the bar to entry. You're having these conversations early on and you're encouraging your kids in a way that is absolutely setting the path for their future self. And it's going to be a wonderful future. All right, Brad. So here's my challenge to you. Uh, my general question. Have you set up an investment account for your kids yet? Ooh, putting me on the spot here. I like it. Uh, I have indeed. So yes, we had money just kind of sitting in a Capital One online bank account. And it's a couple months now. It's probably within the last, I think it's in 2017. So sometime in the last eight or nine months, we did set up Vanguard accounts and we moved everything over to Vanguard. So I think they certainly aren't at the point where they have enough money for VTSAX, but they do have just the regular version of the Vanguard total stock market index fund. So yeah, as they save money, they get presents and things like that. We're going to start putting that into the account more regularly. But yeah, this is something that I waited. My kids were, I guess, eight and five at the point. So this is not something I jumped on immediately. And, you know, that probably was silly. But but again, it's you can't beat yourself up about past mistakes. You just make change and take action when you can. So yeah, Jonathan, we definitely did this. And we already had uh, 529 accounts for the kids set up. I think I, I had those set up by the time they were each a couple months old. So I was a little bit better in that regard. So you have a basically a newborn son, essentially a couple months old at this point. Does he have accounts set up? Well, not yet, but his dad did go ahead and reserve for him his own Gmail account under his name. So he's got his Gmail account locked down at the age of four months. We I've got a look into setting up his uh, Vanguard account. Based on the outcome of this conversation, I'm literally going to hop off the phone and call Vanguard and set it up for my son as well. I think one of the questions that in my mind may have been holding me back, going back to that idea of resistance, was that I wasn't sure of the tax implications of starting this investment account for my son because this won't be a Roth IRA because there's not going to be any income involved. Uh, This is going to be using just a regular taxable account, which I think in our opinion, with a long time horizon and no immediate expenditures coming up, we would both agree that a taxable investment 
investment vehicle would be the best way to go. You could maybe make the case that a 529 might be another way to do it. But in the context of this conversation, a taxable account is the way to go. And if we start putting his birthday presents and Christmas presents and different sorts of money in that account, how is that going to be treated when it comes to tax time? Is that going to fall on my personal tax return? Yeah, that's a great question, Jonathan. And in looking this up, the type of accounts that my kids have at Vanguard are called UTMA. And I think basically that's just like a catch-all for the type of account you have for minors. And and basically the parents are kind of co-names on, on these UTMA accounts. So I think that's pretty standard. But when you call up Vanguard, they'll walk you through that. And there's a 99 plus percent chance that, that that's the account type that you'll open. And in doing some research on this, basically, if your kids have have under $1,050 in unearned income, okay, so that's dividends, interest, capital gains distributions, those type of things, then there is no tax implication whatsoever. So at the end of the year, as long as the 1099 comes in their social security number, which it certainly should, again, in doing some research, I saw instances where people were saying it came in their social, and that just sounds like an error on how either the fund company set it up or how you set it up, but presumably it should come in the social of your son, And as long as the unearned income is under $1,050, and that was the most recent year that I saw, I I assume that'll be indexed. So who knows, maybe it'll be $1,100 for for this year or future years. So somewhere in that vicinity. But as long as it's under that amount, there's no tax implication whatsoever. It gets reported nowhere, nowhere on your return. He doesn't have to file a return. So it's nothing at all to worry about. Perfect. Okay, so for me, the takeaway on that would be Uh, basically this would not affect earnings. So when we talk about maybe an account earning 8% year over year over time, that isn't really what we're talking about here because you don't owe the taxes on that until you sell it based on what we've talked about in the past. But what we're really talking about is dividend yield. So with regards to VTSAX, that averages somewhere around like a 2% dividend. So the implications of that would be if it's spitting off a 2% dividend each year, Uh, It could have up to $50,000 in that account before you start owing taxes on that balance, which if your son has $50,000 in his account by the time he's in his teens, um, I think they're headed in a pretty good direction. Yeah, to quote Jonathan, that's called winning, right? So, <laughs> yes, I love it. so I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. If if you have to pay a couple dollars in tax on the tiny little dividends on the amount over fifty thousand that he or she have in their account, I think you're doing okay. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about that. All right, Jonathan. So going back to the Paige and Sam episode, I I, I was so intrigued by their housing situation, and I just some of the quotes that really jumped out to me were. They bought a house that was just bad enough that the flippers don't want it. And I just thought for them who are these radical insourcers and people who can fix anything with YouTube and all this other knowledge that they've gleaned that they wanted to they really wanted to buy something that was a piece of junk, more or less. And like that was just like a cool kind of rethink that like, obviously they didn't want something that, that had major horrible structural issues that like they'd have to knock down the house, but just bad enough that the flippers don't want it. And so that was kind of cool. Um, another quote that stuck out to me was Paige when she said about this house that quote, this is a mistake, but it's the right mistake for me. And I thought that was really important. And it, it kind of touches into maybe what, what you said at the outset of this conversation about extreme ownership, right? And like how we all need to take ownership over our decisions. And 
there are decisions that are maybe optimal for the Phi community or if someone was doing everything, quote unquote, right, that there's this path. But I reject that because it comes down to what works for your life. And Paige was very honest about that and very and she was very aware more than anything is that this is a mistake, right? But it's the right mistake for me because she wanted to live in that house for years in the future, even though it costs dramatically more per month than their existing living arrangements. It was this was something that they wanted to do. That's really powerful. Yeah, I think that's the biggest difference between the Phi community and maybe our country at large is that while we may make some of the same decisions, we do it with an understanding of how the math works and what we're going to do to compensate for where we may not be totally optimized in other areas. That's what I found so impressive about Paige's story that obviously this house is a major line item, which is wildly disproportionate to what she's spending in other areas. But she said, exactly what you were pointing at. This is the right choice for me. And she owned that. She realized the implications of that on her financial future. And then she compensated for and was totally willing to say, even with that, I'm okay with that decision, but I'm going to make up for it by taking action in these other places. Very, very encouraging. So we got a little bit of feedback from some of our audience that said, you know, this was a little bit more extreme. I would be very interested to see what it would look like for someone that wasn't as frugal, that wasn't on quite as low of a budget, that maybe still had the high cost of living area and maybe also had kids in the picture as well. And while I'm certain that we can find an individual to meet all of that criteria and have them walk us through their story, uh, Ultimately, we all have the same levers available to us, and you're just going to have to select which ones you want to pull. And if you're not going to pull geo arbitrage and you're not going to pull extreme frugality or just regular frugality, at the most basic level, you have to, at bare minimum, be willing to accept intentional living, which is where you track your finances and you know where your money's going. And then if you have kids in the picture and you're not willing to take on roommates, you're not willing to house hack you're not willing to make some of these more unconventional choices, you have to then turn your interest to some of the other line items that you have control over. And maybe it's focusing on the cars. Maybe it's focusing on increasing the income. Maybe it's focusing on just tax optimization. Maybe it's focusing on crushing your food budget. Ultimately, there, there's no magic bullet out there. We're not going to find somebody that has is rubbing the genie on the bottle and they're winning the lottery ticket. And that's a secret that you can replicate. If it's a replicable secret, that means that it has to be a mundane choice, but it's something that maybe you're optimizing just a little bit more than your neighbor. And so I think when you listen to Paige's story, you're not going to make the exact same choices that Paige and Sam made. You may not be willing to bounce all around LA trying to always maintain your rent under that threshold, but you are still subject to the same levers as the rest of us. And you have to decide which ones you're going to pull. Is it going to be extreme frugality? Is it going to be increase your income? It doesn't matter, you know, to me personally, which one you go with, but it is very cool to see when you do come up with a plan that it works. And then Brad and I view our role as a chance to document those series of choices and present it to our audience for consumption so they can just think about it intellectually and decide whether or not it's something that they can adapt into their own lifestyle. That's really what it is. This is a cornucopia of options. Just take what works for you. Yeah, but you have to take something, right? Like I think that's what you're saying, kind of tongue in cheek about the there's no magic genie coming. You can come up with a litany of excuses for why what Paige and Sam did won't work for you. You know, I have kids, I have whatever. And, you know, listen, I make excuses about, hey, we couldn't ride a bike around town. Well, of course we could. We've just made the choice not to. 
right? That's an excuse, clearly. But I know intellectually that I could do that. I just choose not to. But we choose to do many of the levers of phi or many, many things that will put us ahead on this path. So you can choose some things, not choose others. That That's perfectly within within your right. And, and that's what we talk about here at Choose a Vi all the time. You don't have to do everything. That We're not doctrinaire about anything to be a member of this community. But you have to take action and you can't just list excuses. So like Jonathan's saying, if your major portions of your budget are housing, obviously. And then like Paige said, food and transportation. Well, if you're not willing to budge on any of those three, just hypothetically, like if you're not willing to budge on any of those three, really not much is going to happen for you on your path to FI unless you find a way, unless you spend all your time trying to increase your income, right? So that's a choice that you could make. You have to make choices. There's no doubt about it. And it's not my place to say, you don't have to cut expenses $1. I don't care if you have some path to double your income, right? Or increase your income dramatically and you take that difference and then you save it, right? Like this just comes down to math. There's no magic. There's no lying to yourself about it. It's just math. So figure out whatever works for your life, but but you have to make some choices and take some action. Brad, 100% agree with you. I, I do want to recycle this thought that we've talked about a while back. Uh, with regards to when you're starting from scratch and you're trying to figure out how to tackle this, do I increase my income or do I decrease my expenses? Just wanted to make this kind of obvious point, but maybe one that you haven't thought of in a while. When you decrease your expenses, you're recapturing dollar for dollar every single amount that you can cut off your budget. And then you can allocate that towards whatever you want. You get 100% of those savings. When you increase your income, that income is going to be subject to our tax system and it's going to be taxed at a higher rate. And so you're not going to come back with every single dollar that you earn, which is why, sure, increase your income or decrease your expenses. But when you focus at least to begin with on decreasing your expenses, you're going to get maximum bang for your buck uh, with regards to putting that towards achieving your financial independence. Yeah, I totally hear you. And you know, I don't get too hung up on the tax issues, which is kind of ironic for a CPA. I, I just, I look at what I can control. And the low-hanging fruit, I agree with you 100%, Jonathan, is that the low-hanging fruit is cutting expenses. That's something that we can control tomorrow. And you sometimes, you generally can't control, hey, I'm going to make $80,000 more next year, right? That that sounds great. We all want to make $80,000 more next year. But you have, there are a bunch of steps between here and there. But cutting your cell phone bill you can do that tomorrow. Cutting your cable, you can do that tomorrow. Saving on going out to eat or having extravagant food bills, like those are things you can change tomorrow, okay? So in the the locus of control here, you have a significant amount more control over your expenses. So I wholeheartedly agree with you, Jonathan, there. And not to mention like our fine number, when we talk about our calculation, it's based on your expenses. So if you can do anything you can to drive that number down, from our 4% rule of thumb, it's just your expenses times 25, right? So there's a huge difference between having $20,000 in yearly expenses and having $80,000 in yearly expenses. That's something you can control on a much more immediate and significant basis. So wholeheartedly agree with you, Jonathan. Uh, Christy gave us some feedback on this episode. Uh, she said, thanks for the great episode today uh, to Paige and Sam you guys were articulate, encouraging, and very down to earth. I know there are a lot of movers and shakers in the FI community about side hustling and real estate investing, but I like the focus on defining priorities, living simply and frugal living. The alley will provide will be an ongoing inside joke for my husband and I. That was hilarious. 
definitely the most tweetable line we have had in the history of Choose FI. Yeah, there's no question about it. And and it's interesting, like the more I look at some of these quotes that I jotted down, like Paige said something to the effect of finding things or buying used takes the worrying or perfection out of this decision making. That is, again, almost exactly what Liz from Frugalwood said on her episode, which is you don't have to worry about maximizing every choice when the alley provides. We can talk about about that quote forever. It is the most tweetable quote because there's just so much that ties into that. And again, like I think not worrying about choices and like the paradox of choice that you always hear about how it, it can be overwhelming to look at the hundred different options for buying a TV and all these different features. I just want a TV that works. And if you find it, if you're Sam and you find a TV in the alley that you can fix, well, that's fine because you got it for zero dollars and you don't have to worry about having that that remorse afterwards of did I maximize everything? Did I find the best one that Consumer Reports said is the best TV for 2017? Like you don't care at all. You're not putting that mental anguish into did I get the best out of this? No, it's it's a simpler look on life. And and that is what the alley provides them. All right, guys. So Brad and I have been just discussing where does this Friday roundup go? What do we want to accomplish? And ultimately, it is a chance for us to bring in your question and your feedback and really just turn this into a conversation where we can get you involved. But aside from that, Brad and I view Choose FI as a podcast that is about life optimization strategies. What are you doing on the way to FI? What are you going to do after FI? It's the entire journey. It's the entire spectrum. So an obvious extension to that would be that at some point you should spend at least a few minutes talking about life hacks. And so I have one that I wanted to share with you guys today. I think this has the ability, depending on how you make many of your purchasing decisions, to save you anywhere from 20 to 50% off what you might currently be spending online. I have used this to save literally thousands of dollars over the last several years on different purchases that I've made where I have ended up purchasing something new. So here's the website and it's called camelcamelcamel.com. Yes, that is like the animal and it's three of them. And it's a third party website that piggybacks off of Amazon. And I should just mention for you guys that we're in no way related to Camel Camel Camel. This is not an affiliate link or anything like that. This is just something that I found useful. It saved me a bunch of money and Brad was encouraging me to share it with you guys. And what it allows you to do, you can create an account. And then once you're there, uh, you can actually search for items that you want to find or purchase on Amazon.com. Now, the beautiful thing about Camel 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 is that it gives you a the ability to see all of the historic prices of the items so you actually know what is a good price for that item. As we've talked about in other context, MSRP means nothing, right? That's just a number that's set out there. It has nothing to do with what a good deal is. If you see that something is 10% off, that doesn't mean it's a good deal. What you actually want is a number that's lower to what the rest of normal people are paying for that item. So if MSRP is $100 and it's almost always 10% off, that means the real price is $90. So if you get it at $90, you're not getting it at 10% off. You're just getting it at basically the regular price. If it's 70, 60 or $50, now you're talking about a deal. Camel, Camel, Camel actually lets you see that. And even more importantly, you can set price triggers that will send you an email when it hits a price that you 
are willing to spend on that object. And you can see whether or not that price point is realistic based on the historical logs and graphs. So that's one that I have just fallen in love with and I use it reliably anytime that I have a large purchase that I know I'm going to make, but I don't care exactly when I purchase it. I just want to make sure I'm getting a good value on it. I'm getting it at a good price. All right. So Jonathan, you know, I talk about being a valuist, right? And, you know, there are certain things we don't jump on any purchases unless it's absolutely essential that we get something immediately, which is very rare. But, you know, there are things in the back of my mind that I would love to purchase in theory if the price was right or if I knew that I was getting uh, something that equaled the value that I had in, in my head for what it should cost. And an example is I, I know I talk endlessly about this board game Ticket to Ride but my family is obsessed with this game. We probably play two hours a day on weekends and and sometimes even on, on school nights we play. So they have a bunch of expansion sets, but the prices are all over the board and I just can't get a grasp on them. So how could I use this Camel 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 website to figure out what I should pay for each of these expansion sets? Yes, perfect. Give me a case study. Okay, so ticket to ride. Uh, let's start by just seeing what, I guess, your ticket price on this item would be. So if you're paying full retail, uh, usually Barnes and Noble sets the metric for the most you'll possibly pay for an item. Uh, right now, I just looked on their website. It's $49.95. So that is just the ticket price. Now, if you go into Amazon, you can see, well, what is the price here? And as I'm looking at it right now, the price for this game is $32.33. You could see how one would say to themselves, wow, I'm getting this great deal because Barnes and Noble is charging this unrealistic price for this item. It, I'm on Amazon. It's 33 bucks. I should just go ahead and pull the trigger on this. That's where most people stop. But that still doesn't tell you a whole lot. How does that relate to the what the price is normally on Amazon? And so this next tip can literally save you thousands of dollars over future years. And so what you do is just take the URL. So go up to the bar at the top of the screen, grab the URL, or conversely, just make a note of whatever it is you're looking for and go over to camelcamelcamel.com and copy in the name of the game or the URL uh, for the item, and then submit that. It will give you the historic graphs over the last, really, it can give it to you over the last seven years or whenever that product was released. You can also filter it down for the last year. I don't think there's really much value to know what was the cost over all times. You really want to know over the course of a 12-month period of time, what's a realistic price point that you could get it for. And when I look on there, now I can see some really good information. And it looks like it normally hovers in between $40 and right around $32. So anything in there is going to be kind of the average price, if you will. Having said that, you can see that at three or four points of the year, it actually goes all the way down to $23. So if you're not in a rush to get this and you're like a board game fanatic like I am, and you know, there's some board games you want to get, but you don't want to pay top dollar and you don't really care when they arrive. You just want to know that when you get it, you get a good value on them. Then in that case, you would just set up an account. You type in the price trigger you want, which in this case, I would say would probably be right around $24. That would be the price trigger I would set the alert for. Put in your email address and then it will send you an email the moment it hits that price point and you can pull the trigger on it immediately. And that is how I have purchased probably close to, this is my this is my embarrassing frugal fail, if you will, but uh, I've purchased probably close to 60 or 70 board games for maybe 30% of what I would have paid at Barnes and Nobles. Wow. Yeah, that is that is pretty crazy. And yeah, this is uh, that's cool. I like this. I'm definitely going to set up an account and and put some triggers in here. There's I guess there's no downside to it, right? You just get an email when something hits and then you make the decision to buy or not buy at that point. But but at least you have the information. So, yeah, I like that. Another way you could use this would be for a baby registry or a wedding registry where you know it's coming like 
a year ahead of time, but you don't care when you purchase the items, but you just have a list of things that you're going to get and you're just going to get them slowly. It was actually a little bit painful for me to do this. The only problem with doing the baby registry and the wedding registry is that other people are often buying these items. So if you scoop it up, you know, even if you're getting it 30%, you're robbing someone else a chance of them getting it for you. But, <laughs> you know, if you're self-funding a lot of this stuff, that would definitely be the way to do it. And again, the, with the baby presents, those have massive markups on them and you can commonly save 30 to 60% on what you'd pay if you just, you know, either walked into a store or just went straight onto Amazon without checking. So yeah, I almost always start at camel, camel, camel. Brad and I have just been talking back and forth and we've just realized how many of these types of little hacks and tips and tricks that we have kind of latched onto and almost take for granted. And so we're going to try to carve out a little space on a few of the different Friday roundups to kind of drop release these general ideas that hopefully will help you out and make your life easier and less expensive along the way. All right, guys. So uh, we want to take this moment to actually give a shout out to Don that announced on our Facebook group that he has officially hit his FI number. He is now FI. So I said, Don, just go ahead and call it in on the line, man. Let us live this with you because it's nice to have some encouragement along the way. This is not a quick path. And when our community individually crosses the line, it gives us motivation to keep going strong. And thankfully for us, he took me up on my offer. Hey guys, Don here. Just wanted to call in and let you know that I reached my FI number on Monday. Thanks for all the great content you've been putting out and for helping to keep the fire burning. It's been great to have this community to share ideas and successes with. I look forward to logging into Facebook and seeing what new ideas people have every day. I've even managed to cut my expenses this year by another 10% with all the great encouragement. Keep up the great work. So Don, I just wanted to take a second and just say congratulations. That's such a huge accomplishment and just wanted to publicly congratulate you on the show. But aside from that, Brad, it strikes me that in our community, in our Facebook community, we have approaching roughly 4,000 people in that group right now. And when you kind of do a survey of their general timelines, 30 to 60% of them are going to be at five within the next five to 10 years, which is astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. And what that means is, I think at this point, we've shown that this show has some longevity. We will be here at least for the next several years doing this week after week, being here to kind of encourage you on this journey and provide a platform to share your wins and successes, your life optimization strategies along the way. But there's a good chance that we will be here to walk a large percentage of our community across the fi line. Yeah, that is, that's a cool thought. To, to really think that we'll be here. And and it's not just going to be Don with this amazing story, but every week there could be a dozen people. I mean, who, who the heck knows, right? Five to seven years from now. I mean, that's a really, really cool thought. And I just hope that at some point we'll get everything in place so you will be able to do maybe even a live, I choose FI, you know, that whole scream, that whole shout, because this is not instant gratification. This is the opposite of instant gratification. This is not get rich quickly. This is get rich slowly, but it's replicable. Everyone can do this. It's achievable. It's just a function of the math. And when you actually realize I hit this number, it's great to be debt free. And I get this excitement in my soul when I hear people be able to call in and do the I'm debt free scream on another show. But ultimately, once you get to that point, that's not the finish line. That's the beginning. The financial freedom clock has just started. Phi is the culmination of making the right choice month after month, year after year. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And when you get to that number, it deserves the public recognition because it's such a monumental feat. And I don't think that there's been a platform to really publicly recognize that it's not just the bloggers that are hitting FI, right? It's not just the people that are publicly writing about it. This is the untold story of the stealth wealth community. 
And just congratulations, Don. We're, we're unbelievably thrilled that you shared that with us. All right, guys. So Brad and I are fortunate enough to have Big Earn lend his expertise as an in-house expert dealing with all the technical details of the math. And Paige actually referenced Big Earn as someone that she had really relied on. And his presentation of how the math actually works and how you can have confidence in the math is really one of the things that allowed her to feel more secure in her plan. And we brought Earn on the show several weeks ago to talk about sequence of return risk. And at the end of that interview, we just barely touched on the idea of what you would call a glide path, which is a technique to dynamically change your allocation as you start drawing down on your nest egg. And Earn was still in the progress of writing those two articles. And I believe he just released them and they're on their part 18, 19, and 20 of his safe withdrawal rate series, which you should definitely check out. But he left us a voicemail, which we're going to play for you now, which will give you just a, a taste of how valuable that information actually is once you understand it. Hi, Jonathan and Brad. This is Ern. I wanted to respond to the question that you raised in the week 35 roundup. How do you mitigate sequence of return risk as a retiree? And again, so this is about mitigating sequence of return risk because you can't completely avoid it. You can only find ways to soften the effect of sequence of return risk. One lever you can use to mitigate sequence of return risk would be to adjust the stock bond allocation in retirement. You can start with a higher than normal bond allocation and you can walk that bond allocation down over time to your target. Here's an example. Imagine you start with 70% stocks and 30% bonds and you reduce your bond percentage by two percentage points every year until you reach 80-20. That means that during the first five years of your retirement, you take most of your withdrawals out of your bond portfolio. So if there's a drawdown in equities, you don't have to sell your equity portfolio at rock bottom prices and you avoid some of the sequence risk. I like this method because it's a nice compromise. You have some added security early on, but you don't keep the bond share that high forever. Remember, to make it through a 40, 50, or even 60-year retirement, you need the power of high equity expected returns. So you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you were to keep the bond share too high forever, you'll lower the risk of drawdowns early on, but you also risk running out of money over the long term. On the other hand, this dynamic bond share threads the needle and gives you some protection early on but also generates enough expected return in the long run. The second lever is the safe withdrawal rate. Remember, I propose to adjust the withdrawal rate in response to how expensive or inexpensive equities are. When you retire and equities are expensive, you start with a more modest initial withdrawal rate. Right now, I would propose something like 3.5% based on how high the Schiller CAPE ratio is. Now suppose that one year or two years into your retirement, equities take a nosedive. The CAPE ratio falls down to 20 from currently 30. So equities again appear a lot cheaper. That means you probably withdraw a bit more, maybe 4% or 4.2%. And it may be a higher rate, but it's multiplied by a much lower portfolio value. So the net effect is that you still withdraw less, but the drop in your withdrawal amount is cushioned because you increase the rate. What I like about withdrawal rates that are based on the CAPE ratio is that the fluctuations in withdrawals are a lot more muted 
than what you would get with the Bogleheads VPW formula. I did a case study about this in part 11 of my series where I compare these different dynamic withdrawal rules and I found that the CAPE-based rules perform very well in these volatile environments. So these are two ways to mitigate sequence of return risk. I hope that answers your questions and uh, best of luck. That is a wonderful walkthrough. So Brad, hopefully we can link to that in the show notes. The great thing about the way he does it is it's still accessible for the layperson like me, someone that wants something that's very simple and understandable. It's still going to be accessible for you. He does a great job of breaking it down so you can walk through his logical thought progression and it pairs very nicely with uh, the JL Collins stock series. So definitely check out both of those. And for those of you that maybe this is your first Friday roundup and you're thinking to yourself, what the heck just happened? To give you some context, this show does kind of build and so we don't completely throw you under the bus here. Definitely first go start with the stock series. That would be very useful for you. That was episode 19. And then we brought JL Collins back on. That was episode 34. And then you need to listen to our sequence of return risk episode with Big Earn from Early Retirement Now. That was episode 35. So if this was just totally Greek to you, 19, 34, and 35 should help put all of this in context. And Earn, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Very, very helpful to our audience at large. All right, guys, huge announcement today. Uh, we have our winner for the Side Hustle Contest, and it was unbearably close to watch. The voting was open from last Friday to Monday night. It came down to, honestly, just a handful of votes, but we do have a winner, and that winner is Talus. And Talus is going to be creating a business offering dance classes to people that have Parkinson's disease. And there's been a lot of science to show that those two go hand in hand, and we cannot wait to bring her on the show. We're actually, this is Tuesday that we're recording this morning. We're going to be talking with Alan Donegan tomorrow and actually getting his ideas on what the next step is and how to best present this information to you guys and to really help Talos with this project. But just wanted to let you guys know this has been an ongoing process for the last month. We do have our winner and we cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Yeah. So a huge thank you to everyone who voted, everyone who's involved in this. And of course, a big congratulations to Talis. And yeah, thank you to everyone who submitted. And we really look forward to bringing this entire story to you over the next couple of years. All right, guys. So I have one more voicemail I want to play for you. It kind of ties together both what Sam was talking about and the power of collecting skills and also the idea of building multiple income streams and bringing together skill sets that while they may not seem related, if you're willing to just be a little bit creative about it and you see an unmet need, you can step in and change the game. So uh, let me go ahead and play this for you. Hello, Jonathan and Brad. This is Dave from beautiful Lake Tahoe, California. I'm a realtor and have been for about 12 years. About six years ago, when agents started to use professional photos, I got frustrated with the cost and slow turnaround time that was being offered by the photographers at that point. I decided to try to do some research and see what kind of camera and editing techniques would be necessary to be able to do my own photos and have them look professional. At first, I was pretty terrible at it. I bought a cheap DSLR camera and learned some basic editing techniques. I was doing my own photos, then a few associates asked me to do theirs. Fast forward six years, much better cameras and very fine-tuned editing skills, and I now work for over 100 local agents. This side hustle is now my primary job, bringing in about 80 to 90K per year. Although I still do real estate sales, I don't rely on it anymore. This was a really good lesson for me about recognizing an unmet need and building upon it. I have a photographer that works for me now as I'm trying to build myself some more free time. As I approach Phi, probably 10 more years... I hope to have more photographers and not have so much of the daily work anymore. The biggest key for me in this endeavor was keeping my costs low. I was entirely self-taught by the power of YouTube. 
I really believe that a person can learn how to do almost anything for free online if you spend enough time on it. I hope this is helpful. Thanks for doing what you guys do. I'm really grateful to have found the Choose FI podcast. Have a good one. So Brad, isn't this exactly what we've been talking about? You see an unmet need, you've started collecting these somewhat random skills and you just, it's kind of almost this trial by fire. You're willing to stretch yourself, put yourself in a completely new set of circumstances, but because you're applying these skills directly, I'm sure that learning curve is completely shortened. And because you're not just learning this in a classroom setting where it's all didactic and it's just someone talking at you. They say that the best way to learn a new language is to go to the country and immerse yourself in it. This is this is skill immersion. You know, that's what this is. You go from maybe having to learn this over a four-year period or more to just you bootstrap it and you learn the skill set within a six-month period of time and then you apply it immediately. Yeah. And I love that Dave found this need, right? And filled it by just picking up these skills. That's absolutely brilliant. And then I also love that he has a long-term plan to essentially be the CEO of this business as opposed to just being the worker, right? Like he sees a need where he can potentially get other people to work under him and then he can just direct the business. So I love not only the short-term thinking, but the long-term thinking as well. All right, guys, if you're getting value for, from the show, please consider leaving us an iTunes review. Just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. And as you guys know by now, we do a drawing for a book that we found useful. Currently, we're doing J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, and Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. Brad, do we want to introduce a new book? I just got done reading Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, and my mind was blown. Uh, it's the tactics, routines, and habits of billionaires, icons, and world-class performers. It's a really thick book, but I was just shocked at how how accessible it was. And I was thinking, how about for the next two weeks, what if we added that one in and we gave people the opportunity to win a copy of that book instead? Would you be down for that? Yeah, no, that's a great idea. I absolutely love that book. I mean, yeah, Tim basically distilled hundreds of podcast interviews into the most actionable tips you could imagine. So, I mean, it's quite literally thousands of hours of audio put into a let's say 600 page book. And it, it's amazing. I mean, you could take away probably 300 things that you could take action on in your life. So yeah, I love that. Let's do it. It's kind of like if you took our hot seat if for everybody that we've done up to this point, except you brought into it people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you just turn that into a book. That's basically what it is, but it, it's really good. So, all, right, all right, guys. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to do one book for every five written reviews that we get. All you got to do to enter that drawing, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there, leave us a short written review, and then just send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and we will absolutely enter you in that drawing. So Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today, and the winner is Luke. And Luke said, informative and motivating, enough info to help you take tangible action steps while entertaining and real life examples help give you a boost in motivation to realize you can do this too. Thanks for the high quality podcast. Keep it up. Thank you so much for the review, Luke. We absolutely appreciate that feedback. And thank you for being a part of the Chooseify community. If you want to support us, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. 
You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.